Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. We're here with Morgan Schick. We're at Grape Ape in Portland. It's July 19th, 2023. Morgan, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Uh, first question, why wine? I started, well, I started working in the restaurant industry as a dishwasher and um, got into food. And I was cooking and moved into bartending because I got... Uh, I had been promised a raise as a uh, as a chef in a nightclub, and they couldn't give me the raise, so they gave me a bar shift instead. And uh, throughout that whole, you know, and then I was in front of house management, and so on, and and um, throughout that was working sort of tangentially with wine, um, whether as a server or a manager, um, or as a as a bartender and uh, partner in a couple cocktail bars. There was always sort of wine around, but it was never my uh, it was never my purview exactly. Um, or if it was my purview, it was my purview at places that weren't wine places. Um, uh, but it's always what I've wanted to drink, um, and you know, for as many years as I spent making cocktails and thinking about cocktails. I have no interest really in drinking cocktails, um, and you know I'm not going to make. I'm, I don't make them at home, and so on. What I do at home is I open a bottle of wine. Um, I think that the so opening this place was was coming back to being like, okay, well, why don't I do a thing that's focused on the stuff I want to actually drink and think about and talk about and. Um, meet the people who make it, you know. And I was talking to a, uh, one of my distributors the other day. We were, this was the first time that this had sort of come up, so it's, it's not fully formed as an idea yet. But I think that there's something about the, um, like the volatility of wine and like the lack of consistency, which is what makes it exciting, right? You know, it's, I, I, I visited a lot of Scotch whiskey distilleries, um, and they're they're very calculated, right? They know if you put this kind of angle on the gooseneck on the still, you're going to get more oils. So you're going to, you know, you're going to get that Macallan oiliness. Um, and then if you age it in this kind of temperature room for this long, it's going to taste like this and you're going to blend it like this. And the result is that every bottle of Macallan 12 that you open tastes exactly the same. And that's the goal, um, which is, impressive but um, but also you know now you know what Macallan 12 tastes like forever um, with wine I don't know you know there's stuff I have on the shelf here where I'm like well I actually haven't tasted this vintage so I don't know I, I know it was good last year um, maybe this year it's gonna suck um, maybe this year it's going to be better. Uh, but what you know is it's not going to be the same. Um, and getting to talk to some people who make wine, it's exciting that, that they don't know either. 
you know, and they're like, well, I'm going to kind of do the same thing I did last year and hope that it, hope something good happens. Um, and I think that the, it's just a more exciting product, I think, in that way, in its, you know, and you can look at it as like an expression of the, of the land or an expression of the particular time that it was made or, you know, whatever shit's floating around in the ether that, that we don't understand how it gets into liquid form, but it's like, it's not, um, it's not as easy to understand because you don't know what's happening. Back up a little bit and talk about uh, life before all of this. Where, where were you born and raised, and what was your kind of your path through after high school? I was born in Massachusetts. Uh, went to high school in New Hampshire, um, and then went to college in Colorado Springs, which is where I took a job as a dishwasher. I did. We had a, a family friend who was the subject. I had to do a, a project for high school that was like a. Uh, long-form interview project um, and I interviewed this family friend who is a uh, chef and restaurateur um, and I think that's sort of she was a really cool lady um, uh, and I think that that kind of stuck with me when I started working in restaurants that it was like in the back of my mind that that was um, just like getting to talk to her and she's a very colorful exciting woman to talk to. Um, uh, so I started I, from dishwashing, I was, you know, prepping and line cooking um, and moved to Portland after college uh, and got a job as the chef in a nightclub, which involved making exactly as much food as you can imagine you make as a chef in a nightclub um, and was, was promised a raise and uh, the day came when I said, well, it's six months, where's my, where's my money? And they were like, well, we don't have any more money, but how about you bartend one night a week? Um, and I very quickly discovered that uh, you made more money, you met more girls, and you didn't smell like cheese. Um, so I made the transition. Um, I did bars for a couple years in uh, in Portland, I was a server and bartender at a neighborhood bar and grill, attended bar a couple places, a couple restaurants, um, ran a, became a bar manager at a couple, at a, I guess two places um, where I actually got to like start developing a program and it, despite the fact that I had no idea what I was doing really. Um, um, and then in 2006, I, uh, I moved to the Bay Area um, and tried to get a real job, um, which didn't take. Uh, so in, and a couple years into that experiment, um, sort of the, the very beginning stirrings of the, the cocktail renaissance um, in the Bay Area was a real hub of that and um, all of a sudden cocktails seemed really interesting and exciting in a way that they hadn't four years before when I had been doing it. Um, you know, there was just more more interesting spirits available, people learning the history, people reprinting the old books, um, 
there was like a real community building up around it. Um, people using actual fresh things instead of, you know, finest call. Um, uh, so I got back into it. Um, in the midst of that, or I should say like leading up to that, I did some restaurant stuff that was more wine focused and specifically Italian wine. Um, I helped to open a restaurant right when I first moved to the Bay Area that was a um, all Italian wine bar and restaurant um, that required a real crash course in, in Italian wine. Um, and the um, proprietor was um, very passionate and um, sort of a good person to get you excited about about thinking about it and drinking it. Um, and then the the place where I was working when I sort of got back interested in cocktails was actually I was the GM of an Italian restaurant in Oakland. Um, and in a large part because of my experience with Bar Bambino, I did, I was like, well, we can do an all Italian list. The owners made me put on a, like a California Chardonnay, California uh, Pinot, just to not have to have the arguments every day. But um, uh, but other than that, it was all Italian. Uh, so it was sort of like, I dipped my feet back into restaurants that way and then sort of found the cocktail world. And I did that for, uh, I don't know, 12 years? Does that sound right? What year is it? 2023. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I, um, I worked at cocktail bars and I became a partner in, um, in a bar in San Francisco. Um, opened another one with, the, with that same partner. Uh, and then in January of 2020, I got bought out of them and decided I didn't feel like spending my days worrying about you know, whether or not the dishwasher showed up that day or not, um, and thought I'd do something else. And then, you know, a month and a half later, nobody got to do anything. So uh, I moved back to Portland in the midst of the pandemic. Um, just, uh, you know, I still had some friends up here. It seemed like a easier place to live than East Oakland was at that point. Um, my girlfriend is from North, the Pacific Northwest, so this was like close to her family without being next door. Um, and it just seemed, it's, and my family was still in Northern California, so we had a, we kind of split the difference. Um, and once I was here, it was, you know, I was looking at spaces just because that's something that I do for fun. Um, and had sort of written a business plan for, uh, for a place that was modeled roughly on um, a place called Bacchanal in New Orleans. Um, and I wrote out the plan and I was like, you know what, I could actually do this because I was starting to realize sort of how much, uh, how much less rent is here, how much less the licenses are and so on. And I was like, oh, this, this is actually really a thing you can do. Um, you know, one of the problems with the industry in the Bay Area is that 
everything is so expensive that you have to it, it doesn't accommodate weird little things um, because weird little things don't make a lot of money and you need to make a lot of money to afford to do anything there. So when I was here, I was like, oh, I could, you know, you can do these things like Bacchanal, which you couldn't exist in San Francisco because it wouldn't make enough money. Um, uh, that project required a giant backyard in a very specific space and I just didn't find it. And after a while I said, you know, maybe I'm, maybe it's just not gonna happen. Um, and then we were doing, uh, my girlfriend and I were in Europe last summer and went to Paris and Bilbao and going to those cities and going to drink in all those places and, you know, Paris in particular, it's like the places that, that I like going when I'm there anyway. And then Bilbao, this, this, you know, this strange little hole in the wall, tapas places, um, and all of a sudden I was like, oh, right, right. You don't have to have the big backyard. You don't have to, have, it can be tiny. It can be run by one person. It can be food out of a toaster oven. You know, it's like, um, and it's, it's just, it's, you know, it can be really a, a, a tiny, cool little thing. So I'm going to come back to the kind of the beginnings of this place, but I want to back up and talk about kind of earlier in your career. Uh, Let's we'll start with the cocktail side, since that's kind of that's kind of the bigger part. You mentioned kind of not really knowing what you're doing, but developing a program at the same time. So tell me about getting to understand the the building of a cocktail program and kind of some of the experiences you've had in making successful ones. All different kinds of menus are are, are the same, right? Like a food menu or a wine list or a cocktail menu, a beer list, whatever. It's the same idea, right? Which is um, all of them need to tie together, but you also need to be able to provide something for different kinds of people and the, or the same person in different kinds of moods, right? Like, you can't have all full-bodied full -bodied reds because nobody wants to drink a full-bodied red every single day and not every person wants to drink a full-bodied red. Um, just like you can't have a menu that's you know, nothing but Caesar salads. Um, but then you need to have all of those various things that appeal to the different kinds of people, make sense together, and sort of create a unified whole just by reading it. You know, it's a because most people don't drink every drink on a cocktail list or eat every food item on a menu. Um, but it needs, still needs to make sense conceptually together. Um, so I guess if anything, like the way that I figured out how to do cocktail menus was by having worked in restaurants and seeing how, menu, how food menus work and a little bit of understanding writing a by the glass list for a wine list of just being able to say, okay, we need a light crisp white and we need a heartier white and we need a pink wine and we need a bubbly wine and we need two red ones like and and then applying that to to the structure of a cocktail list where you say okay well you know you need something with tequila and citrus and you need something that's stirred and you need something you know people are drinking a lot of spicy stuff so we need something spicy and then all of a sudden it's you have the you have the map 
You mentioned kind of the cocktail renaissance. So tell me about how customers' demands changed over those years and how your, how your list sort of accommodated that. Um, well, I think the main thing that changed was people stopped having as many demands. Uh, and they stopped, they started being a lot more willing to take the ride. Um, and that, like, that's what they were expecting was to be, to, you know, people no longer were going out for a drink because they'd been being like, well, I drink Manhattans and I'm going out for a drink, so I'm going to go get a Manhattan. And they started going out for drinks in a way where they'd be like, I'm going to go to this place because I heard that they make cool stuff. So then I'm going to go have whatever cool stuff they're making. Um, so I think that, you know, it became a little bit more adventurous. Um, I mean, also, you know, as part of that, like, just more willing to spend money on drinks and, like, delve into the entire experience and, you know, be willing to walk into a hot dog stand in the Lower East Side and pick up a phone in a phone booth and walk through a hole to get into a part of, to take a, to get a drink. You know, and like that, that wouldn't have happened 20 years ago. I mean, fortunately, now one of the things that's happened too is that people are, expect there to be fresh ingredients and, um, you know, expect places to have good ice and like, printed menu and better service and give you a glass of water and put a coaster down, you know, just like, um, I think that the, the cocktail world caught up with the restaurant world in that way where, um, you know, and there became room for more different kinds of places. It wasn't like a dive bar or a fancy bar in a hotel. It was a dive bar and like a neighborhood bar and a better neighborhood bar and like a neighborhood bar that had a really good whiskey list and a fun loose cocktail bar and a fancy ass cocktail bar and like an omakasa cocktail bar you know it's um, which is I think good for everybody right it means that the people making drinks get to create a special independent unique environment and the people drinking them get to choose what they want for the evening. So you mentioned earlier that the wine was kind of a, a more of a personal taste at this point. You're, you're making cocktails, but you're interested in wine and drinking wine. Tell me about your kind of personal wine education. How did you sort of learn about wine and how did, what did you find yourself attracted to? Oh, I don't know anything about it. Um, <laughs> and I, I, that's kind of a joke, but it's also kind of true. Like I, I, my like opening this place is much more focused on my experience and my abilities when it comes to um, designing a space, designing the feel of a space, the hospitality aspect. Um, I like I rely on my staff to know a lot more about the wine than I do. Um, uh, but a lot of the way that I've learned over the years is just by talking to people I work with, talking to the distributors, you know, a good distributor will talk to you as if you know what you're talking about and then you pretend you do and then go home and look up all the things that they said that you didn't know. And um, You know, I've read some, read some good books. Like when I took that Italian wine job, I read the entire uh, Vino Italiano cover to cover and um, then for you know, a little while I remembered it. You know, I, I could never, I couldn't pass a 
first level song class. Um, I have a terrible palate memory. Um, I, I, I can't remember half of the grapes in the wines on the shelf behind me. Um, uh, if anything, you know, it's like I think that I'm, I think that I'm pretty good at like experiencing it. Um, I, I think I'm, I can talk well about flavors while I'm going through it and just sort of like, um, for lack of a better way to put it, like the sort of vibe of whatever the wines are, but um, but I have very little formal education in wine and it shows. So what, why did you like the wines that you liked? I mean, from a very like just structural thing, like I don't like a lot of tannin um, and that's just, that's not my, not my bag. Um, I tend to like sort of fresher, brighter, more acidic wines. Um, uh, but also, I, I don't know, I like, I like tasting things that I hadn't tasted before. Um, and that's true in, you know, in food and in drink, and I like tasting things I don't understand. Which is good, because I don't understand very much, so. You talked earlier about a wine list akin to a menu and similar to other lists, but obviously with a wine list, there's an expectation of obviously pairing with food, working, working with the food in the place. So as you're building a wine list, as you're starting in that, in that side of things, tell me about learning that, learning how to pair and learning how to build a list that complements the food of the place. Um, <coughs> excuse me. The places that I, well, I mean, obviously we have food here and it goes with the wine, but we also have such a big, you know, this it's this is a retail store as well as a, a wine bar, and so there's a much bigger selection than you would have on just like a on a wine list for a restaurant this size. Um, but um, the places that I worked before, where there was a wine list and food, I, you know, they were very regionally specific. So I, it was which makes it a much easier way to build a pairing, right? Because you're like, well, this is Northern Italian food, so we're gonna have all Northern Italian wine. And you, you, you have a much better chance of, of hitting it. Um, and like, you don't need to know much about wine to be able to look at a map. So let's we'll talk a bit about this place then. Uh, obviously you mentioned uh, the blueprint kind of came to you. Uh, tell me about as you're, Tell me, well, let's talk about the space first. Tell me about find, finding and choosing this space for, for, for Grape Ape. Um, I was looking all over the east side, um, and this place just came up as a listing. Um, I don't know, I liked, when I came down to see it, I liked that the neighborhood feels like it's in a city. Um, I liked the proportions of it. Um, I liked that it's little enough that it feels cozy, but the ceilings are tall enough that it doesn't feel cave-like. Um, you know, it's small enough that it can be run by one person, which was important to me. So from there, tell me about kind of mapping out what it was going to be. A lot of it kind of flows, you know, it's, I guess it's hard to, it's hard to say which stuff I wanted to do and then made it fit into the space and which stuff I decided to do because it fit into the space. Um, but there's, you know, there's, like I had an idea for a food menu and then we had to adjust it based on 
what equipment I could fit in here. Um, <clears throat> but then also once you have that equipment, then you're like, oh, well, if we're doing that, we can also do. And I'm kind of similar with the drink program, right? You know, it's, we have the, the buy the glass list is as long as it is because that's how much space there is in the fridge. Um, and we have exactly the right number of bottles on the shelf because if I had more, there wouldn't be anywhere to put them. I mean, that's, you know, and that's just, that's my experience with every place I've ever worked on, no matter what kind of place it is. It's like, if you want to, if you want to do fancy tweezer food, but you don't have space for 12 people in the kitchen, then you're not doing that food. And then if what you've got is a two basket fryer and room for one guy in the kitchen, then you're doing fried food. Um, and then sort of other decisions tumble from those. I've also done enough openings to know that, like, I, uh, there was a lot of this where I was like, well, I just, I know what I want it to feel like. Mm -hmm. And then I'm not gonna trick myself into thinking that I, that I know what the specifics of those things are because they're never what you plan on. Um, and with this one, I just wanted to strip away a lot of the, uh, a lot of the, the excess to try to make it as easy to open and easy to operate as possible. Uh, and also figuring that most of that, most of that shit isn't stuff the guests ever in, care about or interact with. It's like, I want something tasty to eat and something tasty to drink and a nice person to serve it to them and hopefully like the music isn't too bad. So with the feel specifically, uh, what kind of, what was the vibe you were going for here? What kind of, what did you want this to feel like? A, a bar um, in that way where my, my old business partner always says that there's a, um, there's a moment when you walk into a space and if there's a host stand there, it's a restaurant. Right? And it doesn't matter what else happens in the rest of the space and how much the person who's running it is like, no, 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 we're a cocktail bar. If there's a host, it's a restaurant. Um, and that, I, 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 always, I always liked that insight, right? Because that means that when you walk in, then you know how you interact with it. Um, if it's a restaurant, you don't dance on the bar, right? You, you don't like get up to get your own water. Um, you expect somebody to come over and take your order and then someone to come over and drop your check. You know, it's like, if it's a bar, then you talk to the guy next to you. You, like, wave your arm for your server if you need something. You, like, pick your drink up and walk outside to smoke a cigarette. You know, all of these, this much more casual interaction with the space and with the guests and your, with the staff and so on. Um, so that was that was the biggest thing, and sort of part of that too is setting the expectations of, you know, I guess it's like if you kind of like lower the expectations, then you can over deliver, in a lot of ways. Where it's like, if you get delicious food in a fancy place, you're like, well, yeah, that was, you know, I I spent two hundred bucks. It better fucking be delicious. Um, if you get delicious food in a casual place where the person who's serving you is in a t-shirt and the music's a little too loud and like, you know, the bar was made of plywood and then you get something that's delicious and you're like, oh, wow, that was really delicious and it was only 12 bucks. You know, like that's, 
I think that that's a nicer experience for everybody involved. So you mentioned obviously you had experience opening other restaurants and, and things like that. Tell me about how this compared uh, to the other places you've opened. Uh, it was much cheaper and much easier. Um, part of which was that I was doing it myself. Um, so I could cut the corners that I felt comfortable cutting uh, and didn't have to agree with anybody else on it. Um, partially because, you know, my dad and I put up the wainscoting and painted, you know, because he works for free. Um, uh, and so they, you know, there was stuff, there's stuff I kept from the space that was here before that like isn't what I would have chosen. Like I wouldn't have picked those shelves uh, behind the bar, but it's what was here. And so that's what we, that's what we did. Um, and just being that, uh, taking that more flexible approach made it a lot, a lot easier. Um, and then some of it was just luck, right? It's like I lucked out, I got really good staff. And so like within two weeks, I was like, oh, cool. I feel comfortable not being here all the time because I trust these people. Um, and that doesn't usually happen. Um, you know, I lucked out. I, the, the landlords are really nice and like really accommodating. Um, my buddy's brother is a electrician and so he came in and did the electrical work and like, you know, how often do you just happen to know somebody who has a, an electrician for a brother, you know? So a lot of it was just good, good fortune. Um, Although, you know, ask me again and let me tell you it's all because I'm really, really good at this, but it's, I think it's really just, just good luck. And tell me, tell me about the name and the branding. Uh, I thought the name was funny. Um, my, uh, my family has always had a gorilla fascination. Um, it rhymes, you know. Uh, the... The, well, the branding is, uh, when I left the bar biz, theoretically what I was leaving to do was um, uh, a creative firm focused on the hospitality industry, so branding, interior and graphic designs, um, specifically for bars and restaurants, which I still, I still do, but this has been, so doing this, I, uh, one of the ways that I rationalized doing this was by saying that this was part of like a, a, a business card for that business, um, a, like a proof of concept. Um, but also, you know, during, still during lockdown, I was, I, I didn't have anything to do, so I just did the branding because it's fun. Um, and, you know, I feel the. I mean, obviously, the a lot of the feel for the branding is a real like underground comics kind of a thing, which I felt like sort of fit the ethos of the natural wine world a little bit. You know, that sort of like a little bit irreverent, a little bit like a little bit rough around the edges. It's also just stuff I like. Um, it's a nice thing about doing a small project by myself is like, you know, 
people are like, why do you have a picture of Elliot Gould on the wall? I'm like, I don't know, because I found it and I thought it was funny. And that's, and there doesn't have to be any other explanation for anything I do here because there's no one else to complain about it. So, um, so yeah, you know, it's like I, I drew the two hole, the, the G with two eye holes and a tongue and I thought it was, and it made me laugh. And so there's, there's the logo. Might be the hairiest man who ever lived, Elliot Gould. He's certainly in the running. Great picture. Uh, so you mentioned natural wine. So tell me about deciding on, on wines. You mentioned not, not being the wine expert, but you obviously know what you like and you know what you wanted to have here. So how did you go back creating the wine list and the, the wines you wanted to serve here? Um, for the initial order, you know, probably two thirds of it was just picking based on just reading through the book and uh, of all the distributors. Some of it I knew, some of it I could guess, some of it I researched a little bit. Um, and it was very much that thing of being like, okay, well, I need, you know, some stuff from France and some stuff from Oregon and some stuff from California and some stuff from Italy and just like, you know, maybe, you know, a quarter red, a quarter white, but whatever. Um, that sort of an idea and just built it out as now that we're, we're running, I'm, ba I'm buying things more based on the actual tasting. Um, uh, and then it's changing with seeing how people are drinking. Um, I have way less red wine than I did when we opened, um, which obviously means that I sold it because it's not here anymore, but, um, but it sells less than everything else. Um, part of that is just like it got hot faster than I was expecting it to. And so, um, but then I was like, oh, it's summertime. Like everybody's going to want rosé and everybody wants orange and light chilled reds and not rosé this year. So, um, you know, we're still, we're only 10 weeks in, so there's still, you know, for a while, at some point I was like, oh, I don't have nearly enough sparkling wine. And then I brought in a bunch of sparkling wine and then nobody drank it. And, um, then I had too much sparkling wine. So I'm st we're still, still figuring it out. Um, um, and in terms of what sells, you know, it's like I'm also learning what the staff is excited about because if they're excited about it, then it sells um, or they drink it. Um, and if they're not excited about it, then it sits on the shelf. I'm curious about the actual opening of the place. When you opened it up, uh, how did that go and was it what you expected? It went, it went pretty well, I think. Um, we were busier off the bat than I thought we were going to be. Um, it hasn't had the upward growth that I would hope for, but it also started out better than I thought it was going to. So it's like we're still ahead of where I thought we would be this early on. Um, people seem to like it. I don't know. I, you know, you never know what the place that you're opening is until you open it, and the people show up and tell you what you just opened. Um, and so I kind of went into this with with that understanding and just being willing to, you know, and especially like this place is, it's such a hybrid-y kind of model, right? It's like, it's a wine store, but it's also a cafe, restaurant, and it's also a bar, and, um, 
we're open all day, and so it's like, I don't know, are you guys gonna show up for lunch, or are you gonna show up in the middle of the afternoon and we're gonna do 90% retail, or is it gonna be a late night bar, or, you know, or are people gonna call and like wanna get reservations because they wanna come in for dinner, you know? And, um, I think we still don't really know, honestly, which way it's gonna fall. Um, we're doing less retail than I thought we were going to, but I also have the least experience in retail, so uh, I don't know how long it takes to build, a, build up a retail clientele for a wine shop, because I've never had one. Um, I have a better handle on how long it takes to build up clientele for a restaurant and a bar, and it seems like that's, like it's going about like, like you would hope. Who have you found to be your customers so far? Is it, is it a local crowd, tourist crowd, repeat, repeat crowd? We're, we're getting repeat crowd, but we're still new enough that we're still seeing a lot of new people, which is good, because if we were all repeat crowd now, we'd be out of business, because um, there's just not enough of them. Um, We've had a fair number of tourists. Uh, I don't know why. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where they heard about it. But uh, um, but yeah, a lot of lot of local folks. Some folks in the neighborhood. There's a couple offices above us, and the folks from there come come down. Um, we've had a decent number of like wine people in, we're right by a whole bunch of the wine warehouses, um, it's a, which has been nice, it's nice to, you know, the guy who makes makes one of the wines that we have on the shelf come in yesterday for lunch just because he was working around the corner and was like, oh, I need, I need lunch, I'm like, and which is, you know, it's, well, I mean, he's a nice guy too, so it's like, it's nice to talk to him, but, uh, just makes me, it makes it feel nice that the people who you're selling their stuff want to come here also. You know, and he just came here for a sandwich and a beer. He wasn't in to sell anything or. You mentioned staff, and obviously you've had a lot of experience uh, building and keeping staffs in the past at restaurants and stuff. So tell me about kind of what you look for when you're building a staff, what you look for here, and, and what the kind of the, the, the vibe of the customer service is here. I don't know, Jordan, can you still hear me? Oh, perfect. I'm about to talk about the staff, so I just wanted to make sure you couldn't hear me. Um, I was looking for, I mean, I, I think, well, with, with cooks, it's different, it's like, I mean, obviously, you want somebody you can talk to, but like, um, for for front of house people, the most important thing is how they how they actually interact, right? And because everything else you can train, um, you know, I can teach somebody how to tend bar. Um, I can't teach them how to talk about wine, but they can go read a book. Um, but you can't teach somebody not to be an asshole. Um, so a lot of it was very. It was like I don't know. Would I want to? Would I want to sit here and have you talk to me across the bar? Um, I have a staff of four. Two of them I found by recommendations um, from people who I trust, and so that was an easy. Um, Jordan, who's 
waiting to set up right now is uh, was a recommendation from uh, a mutual friend who I met down in Oakland. Um, and, you know, honestly, the interview process was basically like, well, Den says you're okay, so I guess you're okay. Like that, um, because he wouldn't send me somebody bad. Um, uh, and then the, the one front of house person that I hired from an interview process, um, well, this wasn't the deciding factor, but I thought it was interesting that of all the people I interviewed, he was the only one who brought a physical copy of his resume. Um, which I, you know, I, I admit that I'm old enough that I, I still think that that's important, but everyone who's any bit younger than me doesn't know that you're supposed to do that. Uh, and he's like 24, and he showed up and took out you know, his folder and gave me a copy of his resume. And I was like, I don't even know where you know how to find a printer. Um, that's not why he got the job, but I liked, I liked that that was... Um, that was a part of it. Um, but like I hired him over a couple of people who had significant wine experience. Because um, he was excited, he was really nice, he was good to talk to. He got the best reference I've ever heard from anyone. Um, and you know, he's like, he's, he, he fits the, he fits the feel. Like he's, he's good with guests. He like, is a good part of the part of the group, uh, and then you know, training was just was just like setting expectations about like what kind of space it is and how I want the guests to feel, and um, I'm trying here to give the to give the staff a lot a lot of leeway. They get to choose their own music. They get to wear whatever they want. I'm letting them like buy the glass wines that are just on the shelf that are only by the bottle, assuming that they can figure out how to sell enough of it that we don't, that we don't lose money on it. You know, it's just being like, okay, well, you're here, like, let's just, you know, don't be an idiot. You know what you're going for, like, you know what the end goal is, which is like that the people here are having a good time and that we can pay the rent. Um, so find your way there. So you mentioned being about 10 weeks into this and still kind of figuring out what this is. So tell me about vision for this in the down the road. What, what would you hope this turns into a couple a couple years into its existence? This neighborhood is like is going through or is about to go through a, a sort of a big development. Um, so the thing that I hope is that in the long run, like in you know five, seven years, when this is like a, the cool, hip, booming new neighborhood in town, that this place feels like it's always been here. I'd like, I'd like the staff to own it. Uh, I'd like either that or, you know, franchise it and sell out and, or let it on fire and drop the keys through the mailbox. As long as there's an exit strategy. Yeah, you know, that's right, yeah. <laughs> um, so let's talk about uh, the Oregon wine industry a little bit. Obviously, uh, you've, you've been around it. Uh, you have wines on here, Oregon wines on the shelf here. What have you sort of seen from the Oregon wine industry? What, what excites you about it? Why, why are the wines that are here from Oregon here? Um, I mean, the, the, the last one's easy. It's just it's the, the ones that I think taste really good. Um, I don't know. I don't think I don't think I have enough. I don't think I know it well enough to to 
have anything really uh, coherent to say about that. Um, I don't know, you know, I know how, I'd say like the kinds of producers that I have here, from here, and the kinds of producers I have from California seem more alike to me than either of them do to the like larger scale conventional winemaking people from either of those places. Um, but I can't, you know, I couldn't say how like Marini is different from Ruth Lewandowski. You know, it's like they seem like they're kind of similar approaches, like approach to farming and grapes, and like you know, they're both trying to make something that they that they think tastes good. And so you talk about the future for this place. What sort of is the future for you? What, what, what else are you looking ahead to, either professionally or personally, that maybe has you excited? Um, well, I would, I would like to be able to do more of the, um, uh, more of the sort of creative work of helping other people get spaces open. Uh, I, I like that process a lot. Um, I'm, I'm working on a project in Nashville right now that, um, has been on a construction, I mean, delay is sort of, construction delays are redundant, I guess. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, I really, I enjoyed that process. So I'd like to, I'd like to be doing more of that. Um, I don't know, I'm an idiot, so I still look at other places, other spaces. Um, I, I think Jose could, run a really amazing restaurant. The short term is to like not lose a whole lot of money. And then the longer term, figure out another way to maybe lose a lot of money afterwards. After Kind of a glutton for punishment. Yeah, yeah. I think everybody in the restaurant industry is in it because we deep down hate ourselves somewhere. All right, that's all the questions that I have for you. I want to get out of here before so you guys can open up or been in your way long enough. Oh, yeah. Yeah, we should probably get set up. Appreciate you taking the time, sharing Thanks. your story with us and showing off your space, and uh, we'll let you off the hook. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University, with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.